0: This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. Yeah, I've been praying about where the Lord wants us to go on Tuesday. Uh, historically, what we do is we go through a book of the Bible. We've done we've done that for I don't know twenty years, eighteen years it seems. So actually, we had the Tuesday night Bible study before we even had the church. Um, pick a pick a book, and and no matter how long it takes, about two and a half years. I think it took us to get through John, maybe longer. I don't even know. I remember we went through the book of Revelation. It seemed like I was a young man when we started and here I am when we finished. Um, it just uh, Hebrews. You Remember how long it took to go through that verse by verse? And even when I go back over it again, like looking at the book of Acts again, there's so much stuff we missed. There's so much new stuff. It's like like you, it's not that you knew it and missed it. It was like you never saw it and you go back through it again and there's more and more and more. And I'm I've, I've really been praying about this, and, and we're going to do something a little different for the next month or two. Rather than going through an actual book of the Bible, we're going to study a um, uh, something doctrinally. We're going to be looking at what's right behind me here. Um, where Jesus is basically talking about the hypocrites and how they weren't able to see the signs of what was happening, the signs of his return, the sign of his first coming, just what's going on. It says, when, when it is evening, you say, it'll be fair weather for the sky is red. This was an old fisherman-sailor kind of, kind of mantra, where I think it goes, red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky at morning, sailors Warning, or something of that nature, and and here he's saying that you, you can you can determine things by what the weatherman says, or what your bank account says, or I'm gonna um, somebody says that this is a good stock to buy, so I'm gonna sell this one and, and move into that one, or I don't know what computer to buy or car to buy, so I'm gonna go online and, and kind of determine everything, and and he, but when it comes to the things of God, when it comes to the times in which we live. When it comes into the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, many times we're so focused myopically on just what we're doing that we miss. We miss the signs that are before us. And so what we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking to kind of a general study on just the end times. We're going to be looking at Daniel. We're going to be looking at Matthew. We're going to be looking at Revelation. Although we're not going to do a study of Revelation or a study of Daniel, which we've already done, or a study of Matthew, which we have already done. We're going to... um, kind of just look at topics that talk about the, uh, the end times. And we're going to be asking just a couple questions. What is next or what is the next event on God's calendar? I don't know about you, but I am, um, um, I am amazed at the stuff going on in our nation right now never actually seen anything like this before. You come in and you sit down at dinner time and you click on Fox News and you get a recap of just all the testimony that went on today by, uh, I guess, Sessions, I don't know his first name, our attorney general, where they're just grilling him, trying to destroy Donald Trump. And you've got, in our government, you've got Government workers that are leaking things that are harmful to the government and harmful to our elected officials for some sort of agenda. I mean, that's treason, and nobody says anything about it. You've got you've got people in our people in our nation, people in our government, and even the mainline media who would rather see our nation destroyed than a, than Donald Trump and what he stands for and I'm I'm not exalting Donald Trump here, but Donald Trump and what he stands for succeed. And our entire nation, our entire government has been brought to a standstill. Nothing ever happens and our enemies are laughing at us and we're having a hard time meeting the budget. The debt ceiling has to rise again and we don't know if that's gonna happen. It's happened 78 times in the past and we're gonna have to rise the debt ceiling just to be able to pay our bills. Our credit rating in our nation now has dropped and it's, uh, you know, we've got North Korea threatening to nuke us as soon as they can get a rocket that can make it to the West Coast. And it seems like every third day they're shooting one out there. And I mean it's crazy times, is it not? It's absolutely insane. You've got all the stuff going on in the Middle East and and, it, and nobody ever gets a break. You've got, you know, got terrorists. I mean I'm just shocked that it hasn't happened in our nation more than it has but it will. You've got terrorists that are blowing up stuff all over the place. And I mean, what is the point? What is going on? I read an article that said that the death toll for Ramadan, is it over? Or is this to do what? So far, the death toll from Ramadan is 1113 people. And like it's, yes, we want to get it up to 2000. I mean, what is this deal? I mean, What's happening and, and what does this mean? What does it mean to us as, as a church and what does it mean to us as a people? And and what we're gonna be looking at is just the whole doctrinal discipline of eschatology the word eschatology of course means last things or end times really means last things and i forgot to define the greek word here the word eschatology is not found in scripture but it's a derivative of a word that basically means the end it's finished it's over and it's talking about what's going to happen in the end times how we can tell what's going to happen where we are where are we now in the prophetic calendar what is what is the future of america what is the future of of the church. What, what what's going to happen here? Two questions that eschatology always wants to ask. The first one is when will Christ return to earth? Or, or first, will Christ return to Earth? And if so, when? And if he does, how is that going to happen? And the Christian church is divided up and all these different factions and nobody can kind of agree on these kind of things. And so what we're going to do is we're going to do the scripture and see exactly what it says so we can get an idea of where we are on a prophetic calendar. So the purpose of this, I'm going to show you verse in Titus at the end, the purpose of this is for us to get our lives right now, to live for him now, understanding that his return is imminent. When it talks about the end times and talks about eschatology, the questions we ask is always, is it for me personally? And theologians divide up the study of eschatology as basically personal eschatology, what's going to happen to you at your end, or general eschatology, which is what's going to happen at the end of everything. You know, if Jesus comes tomorrow, if the rapture takes place tomorrow or or whatever, then all of a sudden that my personal eschatology will also be general eschatology because when he comes I'll be called unto him and all that kind of stuff and got that. But if When my mother passed away five years ago, she had a personal ending. And she wasn't part of the rapture, those that are alive and the rapture takes place. And and so when you're dealing with what happens next on God's calendar, we have to look at it personally in my own life, what happens when I breathe my last, and also what the scripture said is going to happen just to everybody in general. In your personal eschatology, your personal end time, if Christ doesn't return, every one of us will eventually die. True? Every person Jesus raised from the dead in Scripture died. Lazarus died again. The the widow of Nain's son died again. The guy that fell off the roof and Paul brought him back to life eventually died again. There's only a few people in Scripture we see that never did die, such as uh, Enoch and um, that's a, another story altogether. But when it comes to our personal eschatology, theologians—and we're going to talk a little bit about this in the weeks to come—they talk about death. What does death actually mean for a believer and a non-believer? You know, the clinical term, of course, is when the spirit of the soul leaves the body. It kind of leaves it behind. You have—you've been to funerals and you've seen the, again, my mom's funeral. Um, she was laid out in a casket, and we had a closed casket because I just personally think it's kind of morbid, you know, to do that kind of stuff, but it was open for my brother and I and family, anybody wanted to see. She was laid out in the casket, and she had died with her sunglasses on at the beach, because she didn't have her sunglasses on, but she had the white raccoon eyes, you know, and and that's, that's just what I remember. And I'm looking at her, and gosh, it kind of looks like it, it kind of doesn't, but it's not her. There's something missing, there's something gone. I mean, you know, um, Four days ago, the hand was moving and the, and the lungs were breathing by some force that was inside of her. But the force is now exited, and all it left was what I call like an earth suit or a car that doesn't have a driver. So you have death that takes place, and, and then after death, you have what's called the immediate state. And what happens to someone when they die? Where do they go? What 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 happens to them? How are they changed? You know, if if someone dies today. And Jesus doesn't come for 200 years or 20 years or three weeks from now. What happens between the time they close their eyes and breathe their last and then they breathe again in a newness of life? What happens during that intermediate state in this personal end time? And then, of course, there's glorification. There's the fact that, as the Scripture says, the earth is renewed, our bodies are renewed, and we're given something far better than what we have left behind. When does that take place and, and what is that like? Well, we're going to talk about these things in, a, in the weeks to come. But mostly we're going to focus today just a little bit. All, all I'm going to do is basically just ask a lot of questions. We're going to talk about general eschatology, what we can know from the scripture about the future. Um, people really, people really don't, um, don't know anything about the future unless they're a believer and they see the teaching and the clues God gives us in scripture about what's going to happen in the future. If I had 2020 vision, Vic, you probably remember this. Remember in um, the big economic collapse in 2008 and all of a sudden the, the, the banks begin to fail. Wachovia was allowed, no, it wasn't Wachovia. Yeah, I guess Wachovia was, a, was allowed to fail. And Bank of America stock dropped all the way down to like a buck ten. Do you remember that? A buck ten. And I was thinking, dude, if the, government doesn't, if the government doesn't allow Bank of America to fail, I mean, you could go out and buy some really cheap stock that in no time at all, you're going to get like a thousand percent return on this. Did you do that? Me neither. <laughs> because I was thinking, it's probably going to fail too, and I don't have any money. You know, like three shares, please. You know, but, but, you know if we knew the future, life would be great because there'd be, there'd be no need for faith but we don't. The world doesn't, but we have clues and we see things in Scripture. So as a believer in Christ, like you and I, we've got an opportunity to know exactly what the Scripture says about the future, to what happens to the believer who dies before Christ returns, and what happens to the believer if we happen to be blessed enough to be alive when he returns. General eschatology. We're going to be talking about a couple of these subjects. I'm going to rattle these things off um, for the sake of time. We're going to talk about the rapture. What in the world is the rapture? Chuck Missler calls it the most preposterous teaching in all of Scripture, yet it's true. And it's absolutely amazing. Well, when will the rapture take place? There's a lot of debate on that. does the Bible? Does the Bible even speak about the rapture? Is the word rapture even found in the scripture? And if it is, where and what does it actually mean? What does the word rapture mean? And then what about the great tribulation? We know about this tribulation period, but Jesus specifically spoke about a great tribulation. How long will it last? Uh, uh, how do we know when it begins? Wouldn't you like to know that? I'd like to know when the Great Tribulation begins. It's going to begin January 17th, 2021. How would you live now? <laughs> know what I mean? I, I'd like to know when it begins and how long it's going to last. and What's it going to be like? The book of Revelation tells us a lot about that. And it's, it's really horrific if you're there but who's going to be in the great tribulation? Will everybody be in there? Will unbelievers be in there? Will will believers be in there? How does that work? And what's the purpose of the great tribulation? Why is God pouring out all these really horrific things on mankind? Then after that, you got something called the millennial reign of Christ. And, you know, where... Does that take place? Where does He come and reign? Does He reign from heaven? Does He reign on earth? Does He have a building that He's in? Is it a, does His feet touch the ground in a certain place? When does it take place? Is the millennial reign of Christ <coughs> taking place right now? Well, not as you would I don't think so. It doesn't look like it does. It? It's going to take place sometime in the future. And when does it do that? Is it an actual thousand year reign of Christ? Or is that symbolic? Do we just you know, brush that away. And who will participate in His reign? Does He reign by Himself? Or the Scripture says that the disciples will sit on His twelve thrones judging the tribes of Israel. But what about everybody else? Will it include Old Testament saints? Will it include you? Will it include me? Will it include those people who died before the rapture? Are those people taken up in the rapture? Those people who died during the, during the tribulation period? I mean, who will participate in His reign? Now, what's that reign going to be like? What is it going to be like to live in a place where Jesus Christ rules and reigns for a thousand years. And if we're ruling and reigning with him, are we really going to live a thousand years? My body can't take that. (laughs) I'm 62 years old. I'm wearing out fast. You know, how can you do that for a thousand years? What what happens? Uh, are the bodies we have are they going to be glorified bodies, as if in Romans chapter eight glorification, or are they going to be different kind of bodies that are later glorified later? What does the scripture say all about this? And then after that, you have got something called the Great White Throne Judgment, like this great white shark. You know, and what, who will be judged at the Great White Throne Judgment? You, me. Jews? Lost people? Where does this great white throne judgment take place? And when? When in this chain of events of end times does Scripture tell us that's going to take place? And basically, what are we going to be judged about? What is the criteria? Is it going to be our works? Is it going to be whether we're saved or lost? I mean, what what is all that? And and if we're judged, or those people that are judged, and they're found wanting... Phrase we don't really use today. It's kind of an old English phrase to be found wanting. In other words, we didn't measure up, we didn't get the grade, we got a D rather than a a C minus. What happens then? And why in the world is it called a great white throne judgment? I mean, what's the what's the point of that? And then we got this dude named the Antichrist. I mean, who in the world is the Antichrist? Why is he even called the Antichrist? And where in the world does he come from? What is his purpose? And what does he do? There's amazing things in the book of Revelation about some of the miracles that he does. And then his question that's always asked is the Antichrist alive today? And if he's alive today, how will he be revealed to the world? And when? When does that take place? And how is the world going to know that all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a guy that nobody knows comes to the forefront? How long does that take for him to? to Get noticed. I mean, I don't know, but all of a sudden all the nations of the world are, are willing to basically give their allegiance to him. He goes to Israel and he brokers a seven year treaty with Israel. Who is this guy? And how long does it take for, for the world to do that kind of stuff? And, Scripture talks about that. Talks about the 70th week of Daniel, which is the most profound prophecy in all the Old Testament. Talks about the seven letters in the book of Revelation, which is the only part of the book of, Re- of Revelation that talks about things that are happening in the past and things that are happening now. And what do they have to do with the end time? What about the modern state of Israel? Especially in the Ezekiel passages. I mean, I mean, you may not have commentaries that predate uh, World War II, uh, like Matthew Henry's commentary, the pulpit commentaries, and stuff of that nature. But it is fascinating to go look at these commentaries, especially in the Ezekiel 38 36-39 uh, passages where it talks about the resurgence of Israel, Israel being brought back to its, its nation, its valley of dry bones, and, and all of a sudden, all, they're all coming back. And, and every one of those commentaries say, well, that's spiritual Israel. Because nobody in their right mind could ever think that after 2,000 years, God would orchestrate it and bring a people that's been in dysphoria for two millennia, bring them back into their own land, and it happened. I mean, it happened. Just 70-something years ago. It's absolutely amazing. Now, how close are we to the tribulation? Thessalonians talks about that. I mean... How close are we to those things happening? And what has to happen? And if we're really close to the tribulation, possibly beginning, what are we going to do about it? I mean, what? how does that impact our lives? Is there a difference between Israel and a church? Are Israel and the church basically the same entity? Has Israel been set aside because they agreed to the crucifixion of Christ and has it been replaced by the church? Do all the promises God gave to Israel as a nation and a people now apply to the church or do they apply to them? I mean, how how does that work? And why is that even important? It is profoundly important because it gives birth to what's called amillennialism. Excuse me, I don't know what that means. And if I do know what it means, is it is it true? Is it correct? Or what about this premillennial or postmillennial? What does that stuff even mean? And and and, and will the rapture really take place? Or is the rapture something that was invented in the 1800 by some guy Schofield notation in his Bible? I mean, does the scripture even talk about that at all? A lot of questions, huh? And where does America fit into biblical prophecy? I mean, how does... Let's, let's get down to the brass tacks. Are we even mentioned in Scripture? Actually, turn to Ezekiel 38. We're mentioned in two places. Possibly. Possibly. We'll look at this, and then we'll go back to, to Matthew. Chapter 37 is the Valley of Dry Bones. All of a sudden, Israel comes back to a nation. Chapter 38, you've got the attack of Gog and Magog and this northern Confedera- confederation of of uh, Russia and some of the uh, other nations that are all listed here are now coming against Israel to, to try to destroy it and break this seven-year peace treaty that the Antichrist has actually brokered. And all of a sudden, it, it, uh, look at verse number 11. Israel's in a peace because there's been this peace treaty, this is Ezekiel 38, and it says, "...you will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages, Israel, resting in peace now, and I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates." And what are you going to do? I'm going to plunder Israel to take plunder and to take booty to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are inhabited and against the people gathered from the nations. That's Israel who have acquired livestock and good who dwell in the midst of the land. And then it starts listing the nations that are going to go after them. Sheba, which is uh, it's current Saudi Arabia, Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, I mean, Tarsus is where they mined tin, and scholars believe that this is Great Britain that's talking about here. Great Britain now is part of this, and all their young lions, and all Great Britain's young lions. Great Britain, of course, was the nation that gave birth to ours, is it not? And what is the national crest of Great Britain? It is a lion. And so people believe that this phrase right here and their young lions, their offspring, possibly the United States, will say to you, and what happens here? America is not stand, if this is America, we don't know that it is, but if this is America, America is not standing up to Great Britain or not standing up to this onslaught protecting Israel. We've already advocated that responsibility and they're basically just questioning, why are you doing this but not doing anything about it until we get to chapter 39. And in chapter 39, the armies of Gog and Magog, that are attacking Israel. And we will go through this in detail in literally the months to come. They are destroyed by God on the mountain of Israel as they're coming to attack Israel. And look what it says here. Verse number six. And I, this is God, will send fire on Magog and on those who live in security in the coastlands. And this is the only other phrase in Scripture the scholars believe could possibly be America because we have been protected from every major, all, major, all European wars by our coastlands. You know, we've, we're, we're isolated and they believe that possibly here that uh, when God brings judgment against Gog and Magog, he also brings judgment on a nation who swore allegiance to Israel and failed to uphold that. You remember what the last eight years were like under um, Barack Obama when it comes to our position with Israel? And we have a new president in, which has a different view of that, but our government doesn't, and our Congress doesn't, and it's, it's amazing times in which we live, isn't it? Question, where does America fit into Bible prophecy? We'll, we'll talk about that. And then we're going to talk in great detail about Matthew 24. So if you'll turn to that, I just want to I want to read some of these verses to you actually most of these verses to you, and then um, share a few more things and we'll call it a night. Matthew 24. Jesus says, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and His disciples came up to show Him the buildings of the temple. Beautiful buildings, marvelous buildings. Look at all this work that's been done. It's taken decades to build this. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly I say to you, not one stone will be left here upon another that they all that they shall not all be they shall not be thrown down. The temple you're looking at will be destroyed, Jesus said. And of course he was talking about what happened when Titus Vespasian came in AD 70 and sieged um, Jerusalem, and the temple was burned and destroyed and all that kind of stuff. But but the disciples were troubled because all of their Jewish religion was tied up in a temple, because it was at the temple where man met with God. So verse three says, and now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and asked him three questions, three questions. One, tell us, when will these things be? When will will what you just said about this temple happen? Two, and what will be the sign of your coming? Well, I'm already here, so you must be talking about my second coming. And three, the end of the age. And Jesus answers that question in the rest of this chapter, actually, the next couple chapters, but he doesn't delineate the questions. He doesn't say, okay, like we would. Question number one, click. Uh, this temple will be destroyed in 8070 when Titus Vespasian came to the third, fifth, and ninth Roman legions and destroys it and all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, he didn't answer that. Instead, he gave this long teaching that, that answered all of these questions. And basically told us how we're to view end time prophecy. Let me just read this to you. Verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. And what he's working on here, he's going to be talking about uh, the events that happened before the Great Tribulation, about the deception that will take place. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And we live in an age of, of deception, especially in the church. And you will hear of wars and rumors of war. Seems like that's all we ever hear of anymore. So that you are, see that you are not troubled for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in various places and nuclear um, reactors blown over by tsunamis and all the kind of stuff that we've seen happen in the last couple of years. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they, the religious people at this time, will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will be offended at the true gospel and betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the worlds as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Well, what will the end be like? And so he starts talking in verses 15 through 28 about the great tribulation. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel and the prophet standing in the holy place, this is what happens during the midpoint of the tribulation period. It begins what's called the great tribulation. Prior, the first three and a half years is the tribulation. At the great tribulation, the temple is rebuilt. Israel, by the way, already has plans. They have already breeded the red heifers for sacrifice. They already have created the breastplate of the high priest. Now all they're waiting for is to get tired of the encroachment of the Muslims on the Holy Mount or have some sort of encouragement, or built an alternative place uh, next to the Dome of the Rock, and all of a sudden we have worship again, uh, temple worship. It can happen in a matter of weeks, and it's all prepared. When I went to Israel 20-something years ago, it was for my 40th birthday, when I went to Israel, we saw the actual ephrod of the priest and the stones that were there that had already been created and just waiting for that day when they're able to begin temple worship. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel, the prophet standing in the holy temple, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babes in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation. Such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. These are the words of our Lord now. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there, do not believe believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonder to deceive, if possible, even the elect. This is from Revelation chapter 13, and it shows you how intense this deception will be. See, Jesus says, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go or look, he's in the inner room. Do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the son of man. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered. And then he talks about what the coming of the Son of Man is like. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers, the explosive dudamos powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with Again, Dudamas, explosive power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great shout of the trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heaven to another. Ah, Lord, what are we supposed to do? I mean, what does that mean? And so he backs off a little bit and he shares a parable with them. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. This is something everybody knows living in Jerusalem. When his branches already become tender and puts forth leave, you know, 1097 Gnosko, that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that it is near at the door. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So what do we do? Do Do we fret? Do we worry? Do we try to determine exactly when that's coming? No, he tells us that that day and hour, unknown, verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, but my Father only. But as the day of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. The days of Noah were characterized by sexual perversion. Were they not? For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not know, again Gnosko, until the flood came and took them all away. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in one the field, one will be taken, and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know the hour your Lord is coming. But know this that if the master of the house had known this is now Edo, I knew in my mind as a fact what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour which you do not expect. So how do I live? How do I, how do, what's my response to all of this, knowing that his return is imminent? And We finish with the warnings. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom the master, when he comes, find will find so doing. Assuredly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods." But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and in an hour in which he is not aware of and he will cut him in two and appoint him a portion with the hypocrites, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I won't go any further, but he goes on to talk about what the kingdom of heaven is like and parable after parable. After parable. Now, a lot of Christians disagree on the interpretation of a lot of things that I just read you. And I don't know why, because it's pretty clear cut. But there are just a few things that every Christian does believe that the Scripture teaches. And I just want to share that with you, and we'll end with this. And that is the fact that there will be a sudden, personal, visible, bodily return of Jesus Christ. Sometimes they disagree on when that's going to happen. Sometimes they disagree on how that's going to happen. But the fact is they all agree that it will happen, that Jesus Christ is coming again. And our attitude, well, let me just show you these verses. Matthew 24. Therefore you also be ready. Why? But the Son of Man is coming in an hour which you do not expect. Acts 1 when the angels were calling out to the people that were gathered there after Jesus had ascended into heaven. And while they looked steadfast towards heaven, as, they, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up for you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. He ascended, he will at another, another time descend. 1 Thessalonians 4 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. We will talk about that at great length in time to come. Hebrews, here's one I hadn't seen before. As it is pointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sin of many. To who? to those who eagerly wait for him, that he will appear a second time. It's already appeared a first time, a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. Personal, visible, literal, bodily return of Jesus Christ. James 5.8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. Why? For the coming of the Lord is imminent. It's at hand. 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. First John. See how many times this is mentioned? I I didn't even include all of these. First John. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, he's already been revealed, so now he's going to be revealed again. When he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Bodily, return of Jesus Christ. Revelation seven, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Not be hidden this time. He'll not be obscure in some little manger in Bethlehem, but every eye will see him, even they, they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so. Amen. And to me, the most convicting one is in Revelation 2220. 20 Hugh testifies to these things, says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord, Jesus. And the end of the book of Revelation talks about coming Lord Jesus. We as believers in Christ should be so excited about Jesus coming that we can't think of anything else. Someday he's coming. He's going to set everything straight. He's going to be vindicated. I'm going to be with him. It's going to be wonderful. But we don't. We find out that we have a terminal illness. And hey, guess what? You're going to be with Jesus. Jesus is coming for you next Thursday. And our response is almost always, oh, why? Because our Jesus is too small? Because we don't realize how wondrous heaven is? It's almost like, if you think about it, our, the level of our desire to have Christ come almost parallels our level of love. For him. The more we love him, the more he wants his return. Amen? To set everything right, to rule and reign on the earth. But why is it important? Here's the Titus passage, the last one I want to show you. And here's what Titus says, or the letter to Titus. It says, If the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that. Denying ungodliness and worldly lust. That's part one. Part two is we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Why? Because there's a payoff in the culture? Not really. Why? Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The reason why you and I should strive to live holy and righteous before him is because he's coming again. And when he comes again, he's going to set things straight and we will give an account. And and as we're going to be studying, you're going to find that um, his return is not as far off as you may hope.